Okay. Well, let's dive in uh, this morning. If you don't know, we have been in a, 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 the season of a study called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. And the idea is real simple. Here's this guy. He was a pastor for years. And, and he just kind of this, he kind of hit this moment of tension and frustration, kind of like this uh, emotional upheaval in his life. Kind of, God kind of made him aware. God put his finger on these broken places in him. And we've said before, how many of you know? There are broken places in you that God wants to transform to make you who he wants you to be. And so all of us go, yes, I have definite broken places right in my life. I'm one messed up person. And so the whole book deals with this. This idea specifically focusing on people who know Jesus, have been following Jesus for a long period of time in their life. But, man, if they're honest, they've been Christians for like 30 years. They feel like they've been in this kind of this cycle of always coming back to the same issues and never really experiencing the transformation that God has for them. And so we're focusing on this because, and it's real important, we're not just trying to get you healthy so you can be healthy. We're trying to get vintage healthy and whole so we can launch into the calling and the dreams and the visions and the purposes and mission that God has for us and for each of you. Because I don't know if you know, it's really hard to run a race if I'm mortally wounded. I'll tell people all the time, like, I need to be doing stuff. I'm like, you're laying in a hospital bed, barely surviving spiritually. Stay there and get whole, right? And that's kind of what we've been in this season of God really speaking. And I know it's been great for some and really difficult for most. Because when you begin to do this work of, of God putting his finger on areas of growth and areas of, of brokenness, man, it's not always the easiest. So last week we talked about the journey to the wall, these, these situations, these issues of life that we hit, that when we hit them, it's like we're kind of either, we enter into this long journey, feels like we're going through like the journey of hell to get to the other side, to get wholeness and healing, or we bounce off of it in our life because this is too much for us to deal with. And so this week we're talking about this idea of, of grief and, and suffering. So this has been an awesome 14 days of study for me, right? Love focusing on all this grief and the suffering and loss. But, but the idea is really simple. There are things that happen in our lives that if we don't process and deal with them and find some sort of healing in our life that that becomes the place that we kind of stop growing and we're stunted. And specifically last week and this week, these are the two of the, probably the most heavy and the most difficult ones that we deal with. So I invite you this morning just to, to process and, to, and to, with me to kind of dive into this in the context of looking at our, our of enlarging. This is the, the, the title of the chapter is Enlarging Your Soul Through Grief and Loss. The chapter starts out with an interesting statement about the reality of life, right? The, you look at the, your real life, the reality of life. It says, there is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. There is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. The heartbeat of the statement focuses specifically on the way that we handle grief and loss in human beings, human beings, right? The title, again, Lorging Your Soul Through Grief and Loss, is human beings, Christian or non-Christian, we are not very good at handling grief in the midst of our loss and our suffering. 
I'm around people all the time and people in our culture who routinely interpret these these moments of grief and loss and suffering as alien invasions, right, that, that interrupt our normal life. And when these difficult moments arise, we find ourselves, right, trying to step into unreality by numbing our pain through denial, blaming, rationalization, addictions, or avoidance. Unreality for us is the result of not being honest when the hardships occur in our lives and then stepping into the grieving of our losses. So what I'm getting at is that so often in our life we have these moments that if we're honest, we recognize that they are moments that produce sorrow. They produce grief. There's these moments that are overwhelming for us. And, and in those moments, sometimes we prefer to step into unreality because it's just too hard to dive into. I'm sure no one can identify with this at all. We find these moments, these things that just feel like too much. And so we give our best of our energies and the time to, to something else because it's just too hard to dive into. It's too hard to, to get into grief, to get into our suffering and to get into our loss. We, we find Jesus diving into his own. This is a real familiar story. Matthew 26 is the story of Jesus and his moment right before his betrayal by one of his closest friends, which is always fun, right? Being betrayed by one of your best friends, someone you've been devoted the best of yourself into for years. And Matthew 26, he comes up to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says here in verse 36 says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took them. He said he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who were James and John. He began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved. I'm experienced deep sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. You know, one of the, and I want you to hear this, so let's press pause on the churchy stuff real quick. <clears throat> one, of my, one of my frustrations and struggles in my own life is how desensitized I become to the scriptures. Or how desensitized I've come to certain stories that I've heard again and again and again in my life. And so I, when I read them, I think of them only through a theological lens of how I can teach someone else. Versus recognizing that Jesus literally had a moment of weeping because his soul was so conflicted that he could barely process information. Grief. Like, I don't know if you've desensitized this or sanitized this scripture in your mind because it's just too hard to watch. Like, like here's an example. Like, I had a buddy talking about the nature of movies one time. And he said, he said, you know, think about those funny movies. Like, in my generation, like, Tommy Boy came out. All right? How many of you love Tommy Boy? Fat guy in a little coat, right? Like, and what do you do with that movie? Man, you can watch it again and again and again. Like later on, Napoleon Dynamite, right? And it's like this cult classic. And like some people can watch that, not me, over and over and over again because that sense of humor, man. Or like Nacho Libre. I could watch it every day, right? I mean, it's like, it's awesome. But how many of you can't wait to watch every day The Passion of the Christ? You feel guilty even for laughing at that, right? Like you force yourself to watch it every Easter because it's the passion of the Christ. Kids, this is what the whole story is about, right? It's the cross. 
watch the movie. And then you walk out and wash clothes, right? Sit there. Because why? It's too hard. Who enjoys watching Jesus get the hell beaten out of him? Who loves watching flesh be torn? I mean, I'm like, you know, it's, it's, so we, de- we, we sanitize, we desensitize ourselves to the reality of the story. Jesus, in anticipation of the most horrific moment in his life, thinks about several things. I, I, it doesn't, scripture doesn't tell us. So we, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like, kind of like, uh, with this thinking through Jesus being a human being, he's God too, but in his humanity, his struggles, and think about what he's about to, what he's thinking as he's praying. Primarily, he's thinking about what he's about to have to go through physically. The passion of the Christ, the things you don't want to watch for once a year. That's overwhelming. But I also think he's probably thinking about the fact that his best friends are about to betray him. He's already told Peter, you're gonna, Turn your back on me. You can deny you know me three times. Oh, I'll die for you. You're going to walk away, buddy. All right? That's overwhelming. But I'll be honest with you. I think the thing that's most hard is when the scripture shows Jesus on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Why did you leave me? God, this is too much. Because to have a father step away, let alone it be the God of the universe, turn his back because of the sin upon Jesus. Dude, that's overwhelming. Like, it makes sense that he is grieved and distressed to the point of death. What I want you to see is that in the moment Jesus was honest about his grief. He was honest about the sorrow. He was honest about this, this, the grief being these conflicted feelings. He could not sanitize. He could not get his head around. He was honest in the moment. Our belief in the context of enlarging our soul by being honest about grief and suffering is this. God's design is that losses in life and every life has numerous losses, would result not in our destruction, but they would result in our growth. That the losses we go through have a purpose, that God redeems them, that God uses them, that God blesses them. So do me a favor. Everyone just take close your eyes for a moment. And I want you just literally in 30 seconds, I want you to highlight a loss. It's one thing talking about a theoretical loss. It's another thing of like literally having one in mind. Think about a loss you've experienced. It could be something that's happened recently, something deep in your past. As Claudia sits here, and a lot of you have experienced it's the loss of a loved one, right? Just continue to process. I'm just going to throw out some ideas for you. Brothers of you may be facing the loss of a dream. For so long, you had this dream about doing something or whatever it may be, and and there's the loss of that dream that was caused you to be conflicted. Maybe you're at an age where it's the loss of your youth, the twilight of your life, and you're kind of coming to this reality of like, oh my gosh, what have I done for the last 70 years? Maybe you had an experience where it was the loss of innocence in your life that just overwhelmed you. Maybe you've experienced your children leaving home 
And that just felt like this breathing for you, the loss of closest and an important relationship. The thing I want you to recognize is the losses that we face are innumerable. You talk about grieving, a suffering, a loss. It doesn't have to just be some massive thing. It's anything in your life that occurs that just feels like this loss and a grieving in your life or around it. What caused sorrow for you? A few thoughts about these losses just to keep in mind. Any loss in our life by definition prevents recovery. Hear this. Any loss in our life by definition prevents recovery. Here's what I mean by that. Our loss will either transform or destroy us, but it will never leave us the same. It will never leave us the same. Any loss in our life by definition prevents recovery. We can never go back to where we were. There is no going back to the past. There's only going forward. And in going forward, we either allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down till nothing is left, or loss can make us more. Imagine this morning if, if I happen to lose my arm. Unless God like did a miracle, which he could do, right, and grew my arm back, I can never go back to the way that I was. I either I can't go back to having two arms. I, I now have one arm, and I either stay in that place of like, oh, I just love this arm, right? It was the best thing ever. Like, ah. And we just live in that place of just, I wish, or I can't live with that, whatever it may be. Or I move forward and say, God, I love the arm, and I know I can't go back. But I'm going to move forward. See, our loss and the way that God moves is that in loss, he can always make us more. He can always use it. He can always redeem, right? Scripture is very clear. He works all things for his glory. The soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. And the question is, do we stay in that place or do we grow? We can't go back. There's no recovery back to where we were. We have to understand this as we move forward in loss. The second thing, to love something means that we will suffer. To love something means that we will suffer. Listen, our world is beautiful. Our world is amazing and rich. But here's the thing. Sin is here. We live in fallenness. It is imperfect, meaning brokenness and death are a part of the world we live in because sin is still present. Think about God. Every day, God loves the imperfection. He loves you. He loves me. He loves the imperfections. He loves his creation. He loves us knowing that we will betray him, that we will sin in some form or fashion and grieve his Holy Spirit. God suffered. God loved us and he sent his son. And then there's a level of suffering that God had to turn his back. God didn't necessarily, he delighted in the result, but there's no delight in any father having to send his son to die. There's a grieving that occurs in this, but his love demanded it. The only way to not love See, the only way not to suffer is to not love. 
For if we live numb and disconnected, never close to anyone or anything, then we won't suffer. But that means we will have never truly loved, and that is unbearable and unhuman. Think about it. You have a neighbor. I love my neighbors. They're here. All right? I love Art a little bit. Drake's dad. He's always mean to me. Now, in the context of my life, let's say I had neighbors I didn't like. And I didn't love them. And they moved. Guess what? I wouldn't really care. Right? It wouldn't bother me. It wouldn't hurt me. But if the Hendersons or the Smiths, who are direct next door neighbors, are both here, if they moved, Randall and I would be devastated. It would hurt us. Why? Because we love them. And the nature of any time you suffer, it's because you loved well. That's why we suffer, because we're suffering the loss of something that means something to us. Dreams, people, innocence, the future, whatever it may be. To love something means that we will suffer. And that's okay. Jesus modeled it for us well. The third thing, you can run, but you can't hide. Right? You can run, you can run from grief and suffering and loss, but you can't hide because you all know it pops back up. You smell something, you see something, you hear something, and it just comes back in an instant because we've never processed it. In our culture, we want to avoid and run from our pain, and addiction has become the primary way that we run. We watch television incessantly to escape, right? We keep busy running from one activity to another, right? We work longer hours than necessary. We indulge in pornography. We overeat. We drink. We take pills. Anything to help avoid the pain. In the book, page 139, Peter says this, Peter Scazzaro, sadly, The result of denying and minimizing our wounds over many years is that we become less and less human, empty Christian shells with painted smiley faces. We can try to run, but when we do, we suffer even more. One of the stories, and this is in your book, that of a model for suffering and loss that we learn from is, is Job. Like Job is like the Passion of the Christ. It's one of those books you only read if God makes you. Right To read the story of Job and his tension and his frustration and the, and the loss in his life, right? Some people say, some people can't handle the story. They say, Job can't even be real. There's no way something this horrific could happen, right? Because it's so overwhelming. But one thing is clear in the story. It fulfills its primary purpose of teaching us, of revealing to us how to handle the grief we experience in suffering and loss. Like a lot of you know the story of Job. It's horrific. Here's this very, very wealthy guy with, with a family who loves him. Like one child literally throws a party every day and invites Job to come to it, right? Because they just love the family. They love him so much. And Job then sacrifices for his children every day just in case they sin because he just loves them so much, right? And there's this beautiful relationship. Like you would want to be part of Job's family. It was amazing. And then one moment in one day... Everything he owned is lost. Every one, every one of his family members but his wife is killed. In one moment, it's horrific. And then, 
then he gets these like overwhelming sores, these boils all over his body. And then he has a bunch of idiot friends who give him really bad advice. And then his own wife says, hey, I got an idea. Your life's so miserable. Curse God and die. That'd be awesome. He's like, thanks, wife. Great. Right. It's like this is miserable. And God is in it. God is moving. God is stirring. God is actively involved. And in this moment, right, we see tragedy. And we're told that Job had neither sinned, he didn't blame God. And then he said in verse 21 of chapter 1, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. And then he wrote a song for us that you like to sing. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Have you ever heard that? You know that Matt Redman song. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you're like, yeah, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Wait a second. Have you ever thought of the theology of the song? It's, you're singing Job's life. You're singing a song of tragedy and suffering. And he's like, Woo, yeah, this is awesome. Suffering. No, it's just like the beat. Let's be honest, right? You're singing the song of tragedy. You're singing a song of, of suffering. You're singing the song of divine tension to the point that Job is so conflicted. He's not in sin, but he's like, oh, God, I can't even process. And so he spends like like 40 chapters in just lament. He spends lamenting in tension, expressing his grief and expressing his sorrow. And so there are four things in this chapter we talk about. I just want to name this morning when we, in processing grief and suffering for us that we learn from Job. Everybody take a deep breath. All right, everybody do this. This is heavy. And everybody invite Jesus to speak. Say, Jesus speak, say it. That was awesome. I can make you do anything, right? Lift your arm up and just kidding, right? Simon didn't say. No. So first, isn't that terrible when pastors do make you say things and do things? Like, that's so manipulative. I hate pastors. Anyway, so first thing. <laughs> processing grief and suffering. Number one. So this is this real practical. Pay attention and be honest. Pay attention and be honest. Like in Job, if you continue to read through... Job was well aware of and expressive of his lament. Lament is a big word that means passionate expression of grief and sorrow. Have you ever seen Forrest Gump? Ever seen Forrest Gump? Okay. I didn't make you raise your hand there, right? Remember that moment in the storm when Lieutenant Dan, this is like, this always sticks out to me. He goes up into the whatever tower. He's literally up there, no legs. And he's just screaming at God. It was the most holy moment of the movie. He was yelling at God. He was cussing at God. He was screaming at him about all the tensions and the loss of his legs. And all of this moment, he's just so bittered and so embittered and so angry. Just going after God. Smite me, oh, you mighty smiter of the movie, right? It's like this whole thing. It's like, and then all of a sudden, I don't remember exactly verbatim, but like the storm's over. And he comes down and Forrest Gump says something. It's like, I don't know what he said, but he did business with God and everything changed. He lamented. He had a passionate, painfully and shockingly honest conversation with God. Do you realize that most Christians are too nice to be honest? It is ridiculous. They can't even be honest with God. 
they are hurting. They go, oh, but they go, Jesus, I'm hurting. But I mean, but you're so good. And I know you're so loving. It's like, and you say that because you're afraid that he might be mad that you're actually being honest, even though he already knows what you're thinking. Pay attention and be honest. Let's just read some of the painfully shocking and honest things he said to God. Verse 3. Let the day, this is chapter 3, Job 3. Let the day perish. I'm going to say it passionately because that's what he's thinking. Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived. Let that be day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb. Why don't I come out from the womb and expire? Verse 26. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, Lieutenant Dan. I have no rest, but only trouble comes. I mean, dude's being honest. He's lamenting, right? In grief, we must be aware of what we are feeling, and we have to be honest. Don't you know that there's a book in the Bible that God put there called Lamentations? A whole book of Jeremiah lamenting that he was even born. At one point, Jeremiah said, Your words like a pent-up fire in my bones. And everybody quotes that like, yeah, let's go preach the word of God. And what he's saying is, I hate you, God. Well, he didn't really say hate God. He said, God, I'm so angry because you put this word in me as a prophet and I don't want to speak it, but I have to. And I'm just frustrated that you put it there and I'm frustrated I have to talk about it. He's frustrated at God. In Hebrew, someone told me one time, Brad could probably tell you about it, Carrie, he's smarter than I am. In the Hebrew, in that chapter, like Jeremiah kind of cusses at God. He's so angry. Just, ah! Two-thirds of the Psalms of our beloved David are lament. And so what you do is you go read the Psalms, and what do you do? You're like, mm, that's not a good one, which is a lament one. Let's find a better one. Oh, praise be to God, right? Woo! His love endures forever. I mean, what's what we do? We read the good ones. We go to the lament ones. Passion of Christ. Read it once a year, right? Got to pay attention. Got to be honest. God was grieved that he created us. It's an emotional response, guys. It wasn't a thought process. Oh, I'm thoughtfully aggrieved. Emotions from an emotional God who created them to express them. He was grieved that he made you. Grieved. Got to be honest. Scripture is very clear. Grieving and processing our emotions, being honest and being aware of them. We have to be. If we, are, if we are uncomfortable with our feelings, if you're uncomfortable expressing them, then you are unfortunately on a path to a cold and disconnected heart. And it presents itself with passive, aggressive behavior. Sarcastic remarks define our conversations with people. Numbness and easily offendable hearts. Pay attention, guys, and be honest when you go in dealing with our grief and our suffering. Number two, we have to wait in the inconfusing. Wait in the confusing in between. And all, that's just a really weird way of saying grief is a journey, and it takes a long time to get through it. And you're going to have lots of questions in between. That's all it means. 
Like, have you ever had a moment where something happens that's grieving to you, that's overwhelming, that's sorrowful, and you want God to fix it, and he doesn't fix it when you want him to, and you still have the emotions the next day when you ask him to be done with the emotion stuff? And it's confusing because in between the moment and your ultimate healing like Job, do you realize we don't know how long it lasted for Job? Could have been seven days, seven months, or seven years. We have no idea how long the suffering and the struggles and the tensions with Job happened. We have no idea. Our greatest struggles are times when we're waiting for God to move, for God to heal, for God to restore, or God to bring answers. And it just doesn't happen when we expect it. Literally, Job went to his friends and thought they would help him. He cried out to God, expected God to move, and it didn't happen. And then what's even harder is when your friends who are waiting with you just move on. They just move on. Job's wife moved on. Job's friends moved on. And Job felt all alone. It was confusing. The process of our grief is individual for each of us. Larry Crabb specifically speaking uh, about our, our timing of grief, what that looks like. He says, be whoever you are in the context of your grief. Your pattern of grief will be your pattern of grief. How I grieve will not look like how you grieve. And to think you can tell someone how they need to grieve is just wrong because you don't know. Unless God tells you specifically, and probably he won't, you can't speak to someone. Tell them how to grieve and what to do, right? Number three is they have to embrace the gift of limits. I encourage you in the chapter, this is the most important chapter because I think this speaks to our culture more than anything else. When suffering and grief occurred, Job reached the end of himself quickly in his grief because he couldn't fix things. Like, by nature, as human beings, especially as Americans, you think you can fix everything. Someone has a problem, and you initially think, well, I can help them. Even though you know you probably can't deep down. Because by nature, we are fixers. Man, the number one thing I tell people who go on on a mission trip from America is like, number one, you can't fix things. Pray, right? God can fix Embrace the gift of limits because you can't fix everything. In our limits, Job just couldn't snap out of it. He couldn't just, he couldn't control things and make things happen. He couldn't get himself back to where he was before. He had limits. In suffering and grief, in the moments of loss, you become, you come face to face with the things you can and cannot do. And it scares most of you to death because you like control. We are limited human beings, and to live like we aren't will kill us. It's always interesting to me that when people, and, we're, and this, is, this is for an older group, more mature, excuse me, when they reach the twilight of life, right? That they all of a sudden have this understanding of limits. Because they go, oh, I have an endpoint that's nearer to me than I think I ultimately realized. Two years ago, my dad, when he was 67, called me. I'm like, what's going on? Nothing. Man, I'm getting old. I'm like, let's talk about that. And in talking about that, what he said, man, I just recognize limits. I've given my life to so many things, but the most important thing to me is my family. It's you and I need to devote more time to Anna, Catherine, and Sarah, right? I need to devote more time to you and my family and to Randall. I, I need more time. 
Isn't that what happens in the context when we have suffering and grief? It's like something dramatic and tragic happens in your life. And then where does your mind automatically go? The most important things, isn't it? The most important. Hey, leave the kids out there for now, please. Thank you. The most important things. You get to that moment and you're like the most important things. And so this is limitations. We come to this place and we go, I can't control or these people who are workaholics and all of a sudden they reach that point. They're like, oh, I have limits. I can't be perfect at work and a perfect parent. There are limits. It's the gift of limits. In our suffering, all of a sudden we awaken to what is most important in life. Limits. The fourth thing is we have to embrace humility. And this is just where the journey ends. The destination of Job and the primary thing God wanted to awaken in Job was humility. Like Job goes through this whole thing of frustration and Lieutenant Dan moments and all this type of stuff, right? And then Job 40, 41, God graciously, lovingly, and powerfully, with weight, his glory, speaks into Job. And it basically says, Job, were you there when I did this? Were you there? Do, do you know who I am? Do you recognize my power? Do you recognize my glory? Do, are you aware that I'm the Lord? And in this moment, Job is humbled. He recognizes, wow, this is important. Hear this. In suffering and grief, we recognize the world really does not revolve around me. It revolves around Jesus. And I'm part of it. And I have an important role to play. But ultimately, I'm submitted to him. See, that's the context with our feelings. We're not dictated by them, right? We're honest with them. We're honest. We, pr- we process them, but then we commit them to the Lord. That's what Job does. You see, it's like he's in prayer before the Lord. It's like, God, this is where I am. Like, this is what it looks like for me. So, so the questions we, so I'll say this, we're going to end our time. Worship team can go ahead and come. We're about to go into some baptisms and don't worry. I'm going to, for all of you, like nice, tidy bows. I'm going to, I'm going to like make this nice and tidy going into baptisms, right? In this moment of our tension, in the moment of our grief, in the moment of our loss, in the moment of our suffering, right? We become very aware of our, our inabilities. We become very aware of our humanity. We have these moments. And my question for you, number one, is what loss are you running from? Do you know the loss, the losses that you're running from? Do you... Are you, do you know where to be honest or where you're not being honest about loss or grief in your life? What event or events have occurred in your life that were just too painful to engage and so you ran? Or you made some half-hearted, thinking it's faithful comment, well, Jesus can just heal me. Jesus can, I just pray, Jesus can heal me. You never actually process the grief. You never actually process the sorrow. And you never actually process this deep thing of being honest with God about your tension. Honest with God about the suffering and the loss. And what God wants to do in your life is is he wants to lead you on a journey. So let me tell you what that looks like. So in my moments of grief, my moments of sorrow... I come before the Lord very honest, and I have these moments of like, God, this, 
is overwhelming. It's hard for me to speak about. God, and I'm honest, this is where I am. But here's the important piece of it. In being honest, I don't go on the journey into my brokenness and suffering alone. I say, Jesus, lead me. Hem me in in front and behind, God, and take me on this journey into my grief and my suffering so I can be honest about my loss. God, so I can learn to trust you in the confusing in between. God, that you would teach me my limits, God, where I'm trying to control and where I'm actually the cause of my own frustration. And God, humble me before you. And to be honest, there's not, and so in that, it's a couple of things. Like, there are moments where I have to invite people into the journey with me. Like, it's best to journey with people. Right? It's best to journey with people. And the important thing in sharing, so let's say Tim's right here, and Tim suffers great loss, God forbid. It's important that he then has this group he's working with, and he's not then sharing it for the entire world necessarily. But that can become overwhelming. But he has these people who are walking with him, running with him, grieving with him. And the commitment that I'm, I'm asking you to make, if, if you are a person, someone that they're grieving, they're going to come to you to grieve with, would you please be awesome at it? Don't be Job's friend. Live humbly the whole time, recognizing you can't necessarily speak for God. And don't say things like, well, I think God wants you when you have no idea. Come alongside and say, I will pray with you. I will love you. I will be with you. I will challenge lies that you're believing, but I'm going to walk with you until you're done in the process. Invite the Lord to speak in these moments. Say, God, lead me. Some of you, to be honest with you, you need to sit down with a counselor. Why? Because Christ-centered counselors have been honestly raised up by God to help people process things that they need to process. Honestly. Some of them, not great, but a lot of them are gifts from Jesus and they help us walk through things. So this morning, there's a season for all things. We've been in a season of talking about grief and I encourage you Would you continue to dive into, we're in a season of diving into these things, God putting his finger on things. It's a season for us, being honest about suffering, about grief. It's also a season today of celebration. Because the fact is, in the midst of all this conversation about grief and suffering, is that we have still gone down into death with Jesus, and we've been raised to a new life. And the new life that we're talking about is Jesus saying, I'm putting my finger on grief and sorrows because I have a wholeness I want to lead you to so that you can live the real life that I have for you in Christ. And baptism is a picture of that this morning. May to morning, may, may this morning, this morning, may it be a moment for us of recognizing I've gone down into death, but I've been raised to new life. And Jesus has new life for me, an abundant life in Christ. And he's leading me in a journey, emotional, emotional health study, a journey into a, a place of wholeness and healing so that I can walk in the abundant full life that Jesus has for me. 
That's what we're celebrating. And that's what God is doing.